Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In this session, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And this has, over time, proven to be a fairly challenging little paragraph for theologians and scholars. Not so much because of what the text says. It's actually fairly clear what it says. The, the challenge shows up in, well, what are the implications with regard to certain theological questions that we have? More on that in a second, but first let's just set up the context so that we don't lose sight of the bigger vision of what Paul is doing here. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 begins with the word therefore again, which makes it clear to us that this is a further inference from everything that Paul has said in 1 through 4, 1 through 5.11, right? Like everything he said before, now he's drawing out a further inference, a further conclusion from what he said so far. And what he does here in Romans 5, 12 through 21 is he draws out that inference by comparing and contrasting Jesus and Adam. What, what did Adam achieve as the first human, the uh, prototypical human? And what does Jesus achieve as the first human in the new humanity, the new Adam as sometimes he is referred to? And this comparison between Jesus and Adam carries forward uh, this idea of the much more that Jesus has achieved. Remember, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, Paul says, much more now, right? Much more now, having been reconciled. Much more now, having been justified, shall we be saved? Well, that continues here in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, where Paul talks about some more, much more that Jesus brought. And so, really, what Paul is doing here in this whole section of chapter 5, and particularly in the section we're looking at here, is he's saying in essence, so as guilty as we were, and as deserving of God's wrath or condemnation as we are, God in Christ has provided so much more that it cancels all this stuff out. And that's the point Paul makes here, is whatever Adam brought into the world Whatever negative stuff was unleashed by Adam's sin and the rest of us following suit, Jesus has dealt with that, and he dealt with it so completely that he much more cancels it out. So whereas Adam brought sin, death, and condemnation into the world, verse 15 says, much more did grace and the gift that grace brought abound to the many. Or again, in verse 17, as Adam brought in sin and condemnation into the world, well, verse 17 says, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the main idea that shows up here in detail is really the same thing that Paul says in just one statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and that is this. As in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. That's the overall point here in this section. Now, before we look at the details of the text, let me offer just a handful of other thoughts by way of introduction. First, because of the, the comparison and contrast between Adam and Jesus, it might be really helpful to you to get out a piece of paper, make two columns on that piece of paper, put Adam at the top of one column, Christ at the top of the other column, read through verses 12 through 21, and then list off 
in each column what's associated with each person. So list off what's associated with Adam in this passage and list off what's associated with Christ in this passage. And that might at least help you get some clarity on what's going on because it's really that contrast that's, that Paul has in mind here. He wants us to see that here's what Adam brought and unleashed into the world, and here's how Jesus dealt with it and what he achieved. So two columns, uh, Adam and Christ, what's associated with each. That might be helpful to you. Also, it's important to note that Paul speaks in terms of two kingdoms here, represented by each of those columns. There's the Adam kingdom and there's the Christ kingdom. In fact, the word basiluo, which is has to do with reigning as king, um, that word shows up five times in this paragraph and indicates that there are two kingdoms in view. The kingdom of sin and death unleashed by Adam and the kingdom of grace and life achieved and unleashed by Jesus. Next, let me offer a brief note on structure. We said the main point of this whole paragraph is, as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all shall be made alive. In making that point here in this paragraph, there are three sub-points that Paul draws out. And so we need to pay attention to those three little sub-points that make up this big point, all right? In verses 12 through 14, Paul essentially makes the point that Adam introduced sin and death into the world. So that's the first thing he's going to say. Adam introduced sin and death into the world. Then in verses 15 and following, Paul says, in essence, well, Jesus solves sin and death for those who receive grace and the gift of grace. And then finally, at the very end of the paragraph in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, well, the law, the Old Testament law, didn't solve sin and death. That's why grace now reigns. And so those are the three kind of subpoints that make up this overall argument about how Jesus brought about this much more of reigning in life through everything he accomplished, that he's canceled out everything that Adam did, and he's done so in a way that the Old Testament law never could, but always dreamed of doing. And so the grand conclusion of this paragraph in the words of N.T. Wright is this, that the kingdom of grace triumphs over the kingdom of sin and death. All right, with that introduction, we are ready to listen to the text and comment on some of the details of the text. Beginning in verses 12 through 14, we said there Paul makes the initial point that Adam unleashed sin and death in the world. This is what Paul says. He says in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, i.e. Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The point, obviously, here is that Adam was the instrument through whom sin and its consequent death were unleashed in the world. It was through him, and it was through sin that death came into the world. And really, the focus here in verse 12 is primarily on death, uh, that the, the point seeming to be that uh, the presence of death in the world is evidence of the reign of sin in the world because those two go together and death came into the world specifically through sin. And thus sin and death are like two accomplices in a reign of terror that has plagued the earth and humanity since the days of Adam. 
That's the point. Notice what he says, though. He says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And theologians have wrestled with that phrase, all sinned. In my opinion, they have imported way too much into that phrase based on things we wonder about, particularly what are the state babies are born in and some of that sort of thing. Um, and I understand why they wrestle with that. It's an important question. But Paul's primary point uh, should not be lost, and that is what he's already said is everybody are sinners. He argued that in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that all of us are sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he said. And I think he's simply restating that point here. And now he's explaining, and that's why death entered the world. And so when he says all sin, I think he just means all of us sin. That yes, Adam was the gateway, the door through which sin and death entered into the world, but it spread to everybody else, and we're all complicit with Adam in this problem, this reign of terror of sin and death. And because death came into the world through sin, this is really important for us as we increasingly have a biblical worldview to remember that death is not normal. It may be the way things are. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And so we shouldn't just refer to death as a part of life. It's just a natural part of life. It may be normal in the sense it's common, but it's not what God intended. It's not what God wants. Death is an alien invader into God's good world. It came in after the fact, and it came in through sin, and thus the Bible describes death as an enemy. In fact, it says it's the last enemy that ultimately will be removed when Jesus comes again and the kingdom of God fills the earth as God always intended. Now, at the end of verse 12, Paul's thought kind of breaks off, and he never really finishes the thought, but he does continue forward with this comparison between Adam and Jesus as he goes on. So in verse 13, as his thought breaks off, he brings up the law because he wants us to make sure we understand that even before the Old Testament law, sin was still in the world. It looked different. It may not have been named the same way, but it still existed because of what he just said, that Adam unleashed sin. Everybody was complicit with sin, and thus death was a just penalty because we're all complicit in this experience. Uh, and thus, how do we understand sin pre-law? So Paul says in verse 13, for until the law, the law of Moses, sin was still in the world. So sin was in the world even before the law came, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Sin is not counted or credited in the same way. Like what the law does is it gives sin a name, it marks out specific boundaries, and it holds us accountable. So people before the law came knew there was right and wrong. They could sense when they did wrong, but it wasn't as clear. So even though the law hadn't been given yet, Sin and death still tyrannized mankind. Now, Paul goes on in verse 14 and says, nevertheless, death reigned, right? So death still reigned, even though the law hadn't been given. So death reigned from Adam until Moses, from Adam until Moses, really up until the law was given. That's his point. So death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come couple things to clarify there. When he says the offense of Adam, 
The word offense in Greece is parabasis, which is transgression. It means a specific command, a violation of a specific, clearly enunciated command. In fact, in the rest of the paragraph, that's going to be important because he uses uh, several different synonyms for this same idea, violation of a specific command. He, he uses primarily the word paraptoma, which is the same idea of transgression, trespass, violating a specific known command. And so that's his point here is death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who didn't have a specific command like Adam did. Adam had a command, don't eat from the, the tree in the middle of the garden, and he did. The law wasn't given, and so there was this vague sense of right and wrong, but it hadn't been enunciated and named with specific commands. Nevertheless, sin was still in the world, and thus death still reigned. And it's important to note that Paul, by the word death, means death as the condemnation for sin. As you read down through the paragraph, notice how in verses 12, 17, verses 16, and 18, those verses interchange the word death with condemnation. Notice that in verse 21, death is contrasted with eternal life. And the reason for that is because Paul is seeing death as the appropriate punishment and penalty, the condemnation for sin. We tend to speak in, in terms of things like physical death and spiritual death. But for Paul, and really the Bible as a whole, it was just death, as in Genesis chapter 2, the day you eat of it, you surely shall die, right? And so uh, the nature of the death that spread to all men and reigned over men seems to be the same kind of death that comes as the wages of sin, which is where Paul is going to go here in chapter 6. The wages of sin is death, 6.23. So we just need to make sure we realize the death Paul is talking about is death as condemnation for sin. And that's really important to understanding the passage in its entirety. Okay, now beginning in verse 15, Paul is going to contrast what Adam achieved with what Jesus achieved. The differences between them is really important. And so when we read verses 15 through 19, pay attention to the differences between Adam and Christ. In fact, the not in verse 15 is emphatic. So the free gift is not like the transgression. Well, the word not is at the beginning of the sentence, and that makes it emphatic. And so literally it's, and not the free gift like the transgression. And so it's emphatic here that what Jesus achieved is not like what Adam achieved. And the difference seems to do with balance. That is, whatever Adam did Jesus did much more than that. Whatever Adam accomplished, Jesus accomplished much more than that. And so Jesus' achievement uh, just far surpasses and undoes everything that Adam achieved. So let me read verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one... The many died, so the transgression of Adam brought death to the whole world, right? So many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And so Jesus' grace and the gift that the grace brings does much more than what Adam accomplished. 
verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. So the gift that Jesus brought is not like that which came through Adam who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one, transgression privately is the way it's translated here. So the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. And so judgment and condemnation came from Adam's sin. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Notice the contrast is you get judgment and condemnation from one transgression, but you get the free gift from many transgressions. And what Paul is essentially doing is saying, look, Adam's sin brought judgment and condemnation to the whole world, but all our sins, all our transgressions actually was the motivation for God to say, we've got to redeem them all. And so it brought about justification. Verse 17 says, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. And so Adam's sin opened the door for death to enter into the world. So through his transgression, death reigned through the one. Much more, again, the balance thing, right? Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And so uh, death came into the world through Adam's one sin, but much more, there's a greaterness about what Jesus achieved. Notice there in the second half of verse 17, whereas Adam's sin unleashed it for the whole world, and it was done with reference to the whole world, had consequences for the whole world. And yes, we're complicit with that, but Adam started the whole thing. Here at the second half of verse 17, if you want to experience the, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, you have to receive it. So much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. And so death reigned through the one, but there's reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, for those who receive what he accomplished and what he did. So the work of Jesus through the cross and his resurrection completely undoes everything Adam did and replaces death with life. So what's the result? Well, Paul says in verse 18, so then, therefore then, like two logical conclusions side by side. Here is the strong result, the strong conclusion from all of this. So then, as through one transgression, Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, Jesus' death on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, let's just clarify a little bit uh, about the grammar here. When he says there resulted condemnation to all men, that word in Greek, to there, and the word in Greek, to all men, with regard to Jesus, is ice in Greek, ice. And ice is a very important preposition in the New Testament, and it has kind of various different senses. So to all men, how should we understand that? Ice means unto, into, to, or with reference to. And I think it's that latter that makes the most sense here. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation with reference to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life with reference to all men. And I think we have to read it that way because Paul has just said the only way you're going to experience that justification of life is by receiving it. So it's 
available to all men. It has the power to affect all men, but it doesn't automatically, uh, it's not automatically given to all men. So it's with reference to all men. It has a universal reference, but not a universal application. Now, with regard to Adam, there resulted condemnation with reference to all men through his one transgression. And so Adam's sin opened the door to sin and death in the world. And guess what? We all joined in the the act of sinning, and thus the condemnation is appropriate and just for all of us because we all participated in it. So in verse 19, Paul further clarifies by saying this, For as through one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Uh, why does he use the word many? Well, because Paul knows not everybody's going to be made righteous through the obedience of Jesus. Many will, but not everybody. And so he's clarifying that. Also, I think there's a little bit of an echo of Isaiah 53, where in Isaiah 53, the word is many. And he talks about bunches and bunches of people. So for through as one man's disobedience, bunches and bunches of people were made sinners. They became sinners. They were uh, basically given the designation of sinners. And that's what happened. By virtue of Adam opening the door to sin, sin running rampant through the world, all of us joining in the sin game, all of us now were designated sinners. Uh, so the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, the many, bunches and bunches of people, will be made righteous. We will be designated as righteous. We'll experience justification of life, as he said, by receiving the gift of grace. So in Adam... We are all sinners and we are all condemned. But when we receive the gift of grace and we move from being in Adam to being in Christ, now we are given life and we are made righteous. And then in verse 20, Paul says, the law, Old Testament law, remember he brought that up earlier in the paragraph, right? Talked about the law earlier in the paragraph. So the law came in, it was added in later right? Sin reigned between Adam and Moses before the law was given. Well, the law came in later so that the transgression would increase. In what sense? Well, in the sense that the law took that general sense of sin and wrongdoing and missing the mark, and it named it. It named it. And so now it's not just sin reigning, but now it's transgression. Now you're crossing a specific violation. That's the reason he uses the word transgression here. The law came in to name sin as transgression so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? Again, the much moreness of what Jesus accomplished. And so as the law enunciated sin for what it was, which led to increasing transgression, which heaped up more and more sins, well, guess what happened? God's grace got bigger and bigger and was able to express itself more fully, more completely in the coming of Jesus. So whereas sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that, in verse 21, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, interestingly enough, 
even though the law is a good gift of God, and Paul will spend much ink on this in Romans chapter 7 as he has to deal with some of these themes that he's brought up here, even though the law is the good gift of God, it didn't solve the problem of sin and death that Adam unleashed in the world. And that's why salvation had to be apart from the law, as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 22. And so now in Christ, grace reigns. Grace reigns unto eternal life. And in the following chapters, particularly in chapters 6 and 7, everything in those chapters is really an unfolding and unpacking of these last two verses in chapter 5. All right, that's a pretty quick tour through that paragraph, and I know there's a lot in there, and you probably still have some questions, but hopefully that at least gives you a framework for reading it well. And as you read it, don't lose the big point that the human predicament that was unleashed by Adam and carried on by us has been solved completely and totally by Christ himself. And so the problem of Adam has been undone in Christ, sin and death. Evil itself has been conquered by Jesus's act of obedience. And now those who receive the grace of God and the gift of righteousness that grace affords will reign in Christ unto eternal life. And so in Christ, sin, death, condemnation, and evil has been overcome and has been and will be vanquished once and for all someday. And those who are in Christ will reign in life just as humans always were intended to by God. They will reign as viceroys of God over a new earth, as Scripture regularly teaches, and they will do so because of the superabundance of grace available from God in Christ, and God and His grace will be all in all. All right, now before we leave this paragraph, I think it's appropriate that I at least take a second and talk about some of the theological issues that emerge in this text. And so if you're one of those who loves uh, some detailed theology, let me just spend a couple minutes clarifying some things about this text. And that's this. This is the paragraph, at least one of the main paragraphs, for which all the varying views of original sin emerge. This is one of the central texts for really every different view of original sin, meaning what 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 are the What's the state babies are born in? And those that believe that babies are born completely innocent and sin-free and guilt-free, they see that in this text. Those that think that guilt, uh, babies are born uh, completely sinful and even condemned, and thus that's why they baptize babies, they find that in this text. Those that are in the middle somewhere and say that babies are born sinful but not condemned, well, they find that in this text. This text is really the central text for every different view of original sin. Now, in my opinion, I think that should tip us off that maybe we're trying to make too much of the text. When we can find our very different contrasting views in the same text, it might suggest we're reading it wrongly. Personally, I don't think this text necessarily clearly and explicitly answers the question of what state babies are born in. I think that's an important question for us. I just don't think that's the question Paul is answering here. Uh, that's maybe a later theological question that we wonder. Paul just isn't dealing with that here. Paul is simply capturing up the argument he's made thus far and propelling it forward into new directions in the book of Romans. And so uh, 
What state are babies born in? I just don't think he's answering that here. And yet I understand the difficulty of the question, well, then why do babies die? If death spread to all men because all sinned and death came through Adam and babies die, but babies don't have the freedom to choose. I, I understand all that difficulty. And I get maybe there's some implications in here for that question. I just think it's more important for us to let the main thing be the main thing and not turn this text into something more than it is and force it to answer all our questions when that's not what it was designed to do so. It seems to me that Paul is far more concerned in Romans. We already saw it in Romans 2 and 3, uh, and we see it again in 6.23. I think it's the same here. Paul is far more concerned here in Romans with each of our own individual uh, guilt and responsibility and culpability for our own behavior and that's what we should focus on in this text. Now, having said that, I would say that one of the things I think we can draw out of this text that just seems very true is the interconnectedness of human beings, that we tend in modern post-Enlightenment Western society to think of ourselves first and foremost as an individual, whereas Paul in his more collective uh, culture saw human beings as an interconnected family, and the choices of one group impacted uh, people and had a ripple effect down the line. I think Paul's view is far more accurate than our view, that we are interconnected, and we are all a family, and thus there's a certain sense in which Adam's choice just intrinsically, organically has an impact on the rest of us, right? And so, for example, look at the interconnectedness that of just, here's an example that we can appreciate. A child born with severe handicaps is born that way because mom used drugs, say, during the pregnancy. It's not fair that the child's born that way and going to have to live with that, but it's just a true reality that there's an interconnectedness there, right? Genetic diseases that get passed on with, with, uh, within families through no fault of our own aren't necessarily fair, but it still happens because we're all interconnected. And so I do think um, at least uh, Paul's understanding of the way life works and the way the human family is connected maybe tells us something about how he understands all of us experiencing sin and death and condemnation as a result of what Adam did. It gets passed on somehow to each of us. It, it, it gets in our system. It gets in our environment. It gets in our world. And we're all infected and all affected by it. And that's just the way life works. We are an interconnected people. and. Jesus, through his one act of righteousness, in some miraculous, amazing way, undoes all that so that by entering into him, the infection of Adam's sin and condemnation and death that we all now have inherited in some way and experienced in some way and chosen in our own way, all of that is undone in Jesus. And then in the following chapters of this section, chapter 6 and 7, Paul's going to unpack how that all plays out, how we've been set free from the power of sin and sin no longer reigns over us, how we've been set free from the law and by setting us free from the law, we're actually set free even further from sin so that now we can have this great assurance that we will reign in life through Jesus together someday. And that's where this whole section is going in chapter 6, 7, and 8.